Chapter 27 of The Pretty Lady by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 27. The Clyde. She was sitting up on the chaise longue and had poured out the tea. He had pushed the tea table towards the chaise longue. And she was talking in an ordinary tone, just as though she had not immodestly bared her spirit to him, and as though she knew not that he realised she had done so. She was talking at length, as one who in the past had been well accustomed to giving monologues and to holding drawing-rooms in subjection while she chattered, and to making drawing-rooms feel glad that they had consented to subjection. She was saying, You've no idea what the valley of the Clyde is now. You can't have. It's filled with girls, and they come into it every morning by train to huge stations specially built for them, and they make the most ghastly things for killing other girls' lovers all day, and they go back by train at night. Only some of them work all night. I had to leave my own works to organise the canteen of a new filling factory. Five thousand girls in that factory. It's frightfully dangerous. They have to wear special clothing. They have to take off every stitch from their bodies in one room and run in their innocence and nothing else to another room where the special clothing is. That's the only way to prevent the whole place being blown up one beautiful day. But five thousand of them. You can't imagine it. You'd like to, G.J., but you can't. However, I didn't stay there very long. I wanted to go back to my own place. I was adored at my own place. Of course the men adored me. They used to fight about me sometimes. Terrific men. Nothing ever made me happier than that, or so happy. But the girls were more interesting. Two thousand of them there. You'd never guess it, because they were hidden in thickets of machinery. But see them rush out endlessly to the canteen for tea. All sorts. Lots of devils and cats. Some lovely creatures, heavenly creatures as fine as a queen. They adored me too. They didn't at first, some of them, but they soon tumbled to it that I was the modern woman and that they'd never seen me before, and it was a great discovery. Absurdly easy to raise yourself to be the idol of a crowd that fancies itself canny. Incredibly easy. I used to take their part against the works manager as often as I could. He was a fiend. He hated me. But then I was a fiend too, and I hated him more. I used often to come on at six in the morning, when they did, and sign on. It isn't really signing on now at all. There's a clock dial on a whole machine for catching you out. They love to see me doing that. And I work the lathe sometimes, just for a bit, just to show that I wasn't ashamed to work, etc. All that sentimental twaddle. It pleased them. And if any really vigorous-minded girl had dared to say it was sentimental twaddle, there would have been a crucifixion or something of the sort in the cloakrooms. The mob's always the same. But what pleased them far more than anything was me knowing them by their Christian names. Not all, of course. Still, hundreds of them. Marvellous feats of memorising I did. I used to go about muttering under my breath. Winnie, water on left hand. Winnie, water on left hand. Winnie, water on left hand. You see? And I've sworn at them. Not often. Wouldn't do, naturally. But there was scarcely a woman there that I couldn't simply blast in two seconds if I felt like it. On the other hand, I assure you I could be very tender. I was surprised how tender I could be now and then in my little office. They'd tell me anything. Sounds sentimental, but they would. And some of them had no more notion that there's such a thing on earth as propriety than a monkey has. I thought I knew everything before I went to the Clyde Valley. Well, I didn't. Concepcion looked at G.J. You know, you're very innocent, G.J., compared to me. I should hope so, said G.J. impenetrably. What do you think of it all? she demanded in a fresh tone, leaning a little towards him. He replied, I'm impressed. He was, in fact, very profoundly impressed. 
but he had to illustrate the hardness in himself which she had revealed to him. He wondered whether the members of the Letchford Committee really did credit him with having dethroned a couple of chairmen. The idea was new to his modesty. Perhaps he had been underestimating his own weight on the committee. No doubt he had. All constraint was now dissipated between Concepcion and himself. They were behaving to each other as though their intimacy had never been interrupted for a single week. She amazed him, sitting there in the purple stockings and the affronting gown, and he admired. Her material achievement alone was prodigious. He pictured her as she rose in the winter dark and in the summer dawn to go to the works and wrestle with so much incalculable human nature and so many complex questions of organisation, day after day, week after week, month after month, for nearly eighteen months. She kept it up. That was the point. She had shown what she was made of, and what she was made of was unquestionably marvellous. He would have liked to know about various things to which she had made no reference. Did she live in a frowsy lodging-house near the great works? What kind of food did she get? What did she do with her evenings and her Sundays? Was she bored? Was she miserable or exultant? Had she acquaintances, external interests? Or did she immerse herself completely, inclusively, in the huge, smoking, whirring, foul, perilous hell which she had described? The contemplation of the horror of the hell gave him, and her too, he thought, a curious feeling which was not unpleasurable. It had savour. He would not, however, inquire from her concerning details. He preferred on reflection to keep the details mysterious, as mysterious as her individuality and as the impression of her worn eyes. The setting of mystery in his mind suited her. He said, But of course your relations with those girls were artificial after all. No, they weren't. I tell you the girls were perfectly open. There wasn't the slightest artificiality. Yes, but were you open to them? Did you ever tell them anything about yourself, for instance? Oh, no. Did they ever ask you to? No, they wouldn't have thought of doing so. That's what I call artificiality. By the way, how have you been ruined? Who ruined you? Was it the hated works manager? There had been no change in his tone. He spoke with the utmost detachment. I was coming to that, answered Concepcion, apparently with a detachment equal to his. Last week but one, in one of the shops, there was a girl standing in front of a machine with her back to it. About twenty-two, you must see her in your mind, about twenty-two, nice chestnut hair. Cap over it, of course, that's the rule. Khaki overalls and trousers, rather high-heeled patent leather boots. They fancy themselves, thank God. And a bit of lace showing out of the khaki at the neck. Red cheeks. She was fairly new to the works. Do you see her? She meant to be one of the devils earning two pounds a week nearly, and eagerly spending it all, fully awake to all the possibilities of her body. I was in the shop. I said something to her, and she didn't hear at first. The noise of some of the shops is shattering. I went close to her and repeated it. She laughed out of mere vivacity, and threw back her head as people do when they laugh. The machine behind her must have caught some hair that wasn't under her cap. All her hair was dragged from under the cap, and in no time all her hair was torn out, and the whole of her scalp ripped clean off. In a second or two I got her onto a trolley. I did it, and threw an overall over her, and ran her to the dressing station, close to the main office entrance. There was a car there. One of the directors was just driving off. I stopped him. It wasn't a case for our dressing station. In three minutes I had her at the hospital. Three minutes. The car was soaked in blood. But she didn't lose consciousness, that child didn't. She's dead now. She's buried. 
a body that she meant to use so profusely for her own delights, is squeezed up in the little black box in the dark and the silence, down below where the spring can't get at it. I had no sleep for two nights. On the second day, a doctor at the hospital said that I must take at least three months' holiday. He said I'd had a nervous breakdown. I didn't know I had, and I don't know now. I said I wouldn't take any holiday, and that nothing would induce me to. Why, Con? Because I'd sworn, absolutely sworn to myself, to stick that job till the war was over. You understand, I'd sworn it. Well, they wouldn't let me on to the works. And yesterday one of the directors brought me up to town himself. He was very kind in his Clyde way. Now you understand what I mean when I say I'm ruined. I'm ruined with myself, you see. I didn't stick it. I couldn't. But there were twenty or thirty girls who saw the accident. They're sticking it. Yes, he said in a voice soft and moved. I understand. While he spoke thus aloud, though his emotion was genuine, and his desire to comfort and sustain her genuine, and his admiration for her genuine, he thought to himself, how theatrically she told it. Every effect was studied, nearly every word. Well, she can't help it. But does she imagine I can't see that all the casualness was deliberately part of the effect? She lit a cigarette and leaned her half-draped elbows on the tea-table, and curved her ring-fingers, which had withstood time and fatigue much better than her face. And then she reclined again on the chaise longue on her back, and sent up smoke perpendicularly, and through the smoke seemed to be trying to decipher the enigmas of the ceiling. G.J. rose and stood over her in silence. At last she went on. The work those girls do is excruciating, hellish, and they don't realise it. That's the worst of it. They'll never be the same again. They're ruining their health, and what's more important, their looks. You can see them changing under your eyes. Ours was the best factory on the Clyde, and the conditions were unspeakable. In spite of canteens and restrooms and libraries and sanitation and all this damned welfare... Fancy a girl chained up for twelve hours every day to a thundering, whizzing iron machine that never gets tired. The machine's just as fresh at six o'clock at night as it was at six in the morning, and just as anxious to maim her if she doesn't look out for herself, more anxious. The whole thing's still going on. They're at it now, this very minute. You're interested in a factory, aren't you, G.J.? Yes, he answered gently, looking with seemingly callous firmness down at her. The Brivanic Company, or some such name? Yes. Making tons of money, I hear? Yes. You're a profiteer, G.J. I'm not. Long since I decided I must give away all my extra profits. Ever go and look at your factory? No. Any nice young girls working there? I don't know. If there are, are they decently treated? Don't know that either. Why don't you go and see? It's no business of mine. Yes, it is. Aren't you making yourself glorious as a philanthropist out of the thing? I tell you, it's no business of mine, he insisted evenly. I couldn't do anything if I went. I've no status. Rotten system. Possibly. But systems can't be altered like that. Systems alter themselves, and they aren't in a hurry about it. This system isn't new, though it's new to you. You people in London don't know what work is. And what about your Clyde strikes? G.J. retorted. Well, that's all settled now, said Concepcion, rather uneasily, like a champion who foresees a fight but lacks confidence. 
Yes, but... G.J. suddenly altered his tone to the persuasive. You must know all about these strikes. What was the real cause? We don't understand them here. If you really want to know, nerves, she said earnestly and triumphantly. Nerves? Overwork, no rest, no change, everlasting punishment. One incomprehensible thing to me is that the whole of Glasgow didn't go on strike and stay out forever. There's just as much overwork in London as there is on the Clyde. There's a lot more talking, Parliament, Cabinet, Committees. You should hear what they say about it in Glasgow. Con, he said kindly, you don't suspect it, but you're childish. It's the job of one part of London to talk. If that part of London didn't talk, your tribes on the Clyde couldn't work, because they wouldn't know what to do nor how to do it. Talking has to come before working, and let me tell you, it's more difficult and it's more killing, because it's more responsible. Excuse this common sense made easy for beginners, but you put it on yourself. She frowned. And what do you do? Do you talk or work? She smiled. I'll tell you this, said he, smiling candidly and benevolently. It took me a dickens of a time, really, to put myself into anything that meant steady effort. I'd lost the habit. Natural enough, and I'm not going into sackcloth about it. However, I'm improving. I'm going to take on the secretaryship of the Letford Committee. Some of them mayn't want me, but they'll have to have me. And when they've got me, they'll have to look out. All of them, including Queen and her mother. Would it take the whole of your time? Yes, I'm doing three days a week now. I suppose you think you've beaten me. Con, I do ask you not to be a child. But I am a child. Why don't you humour me? You know I've had a nervous breakdown. You used to humour me. He shook his head. Humouring you won't do your nervous breakdown any good. It might some women's, but not yours. You shall humour me, she cried. I haven't told you half my ruin. Do you know I meant to love Carly all my life? I felt sure I should. But I can't. It's gone, all that feeling, already, in less than two years. And now I'm only sorry for him and sorry for myself. Isn't it horrible? Isn't it horrible? Try not to think, he murmured. She sat up impetuously. Don't talk such damn nonsense. Try not to think. Why, my frightful unhappiness is the one thing that keeps me alive. Yes, G.J. yielded. It was nonsense. She sank back. He saw moisture in her eyes and felt it in his own. Chapter 28 Salome Lady Queenie arrived in haste, as though relentless time had pursued her up the stairs. "'Why, you're in the dark here!' she exclaimed impatiently, and impatiently switched on several lights. "'Sorry I'm late, G.J.' she said perfunctorily, without taking any trouble to put conviction into her voice. "'How have you two been getting on?' She looked at Conceptian and G.J. in a peculiar way, inquisitorial and implicatory. Then, towards the door, "'Come in, come in, darling!' A young soldier with the stripe of a lance corporal entered, slightly nervous and slightly defiant. And you, Miss, I forget your name? A young woman entered. She had very red lips and very high heels, and was both more nervous and more defiant than the young soldier. This is Mr. Darlin, you know, Con, second ballet master at the Ottoman. I met him by sheer marvellous chance. He's only got ten minutes. He hasn't really got that. But he's going to see me do my salami dance. 
Lady Queenie made no attempt to introduce Miss I-forget-your-name, who of her own accord took a chair with a curious dash defrontery. It appeared that she was attached to Mr. Darling. Lady Queenie cast off rapidly gloves, hat and coat, and then, having rushed to the bell and rung it fiercely several times, came back to the chaise longue and gazed at it and at the surrounding floor. "'Would you mind, Con?' Concepcion rose. Lady Queenie, rushing off again, pushed several more switches, and from a thick cluster of barbs in front of a large mirror at the end of the room there fell dazzling sheets of light. A footman presented himself. "'Push the daybag right away towards the window,' she commanded. The footman inclined and obeyed, and the lance corporal superiorly helped him. Then the footman was told to energise the gramophone, which, in its specially designed case, stood in a corner. The footman seemed to be on intimate terms with the gramophone. Meanwhile, Lady Queenie, with a safety pin, was fastening the back hem of her short skirt to the front between the knees. Still bending, she took her shoes off. Her scent impregnated the room. "'You see, it will be barefoot,' she explained to Mr. Darlin. The walls of London were already billed with an early announcement of the marvels of the pageant of Terpsichore, which was to occur at the Albert Hall, under the superintendence of the greatest modern English painters, in aid of a fund for soldiers disabled by deafness. The performers were all ladies of the upper world, ladies bearing names for the most part as familiar as the names of streets, and not a stage star among them. Amateurism was to be absolutely untainted by professionalism in the prodigious affair. Therefore, the price of tickets ruled high, and queens had conferred their patronage. Lady Queenie removed several bracelets and a necklace, and seizing a plate, deposited it on the carpet. "'That piece of bread and butter,' she said, "'is the head of my beloved John.' The clever footman started the gramophone, and Lady Queenie began to dance. The lance corporal walked round her, surveying her at all angles, watching her like a tiger, imitating movements, suggesting movements, sketching emotions with his arm, raising himself at intervals on the toes of his thick boots. After a few moments, Concepcion glanced at G.J., conveying to him a passionate, adoring admiration of Queenie's talent. G.J., startled by her brightened eyes so suddenly full of temperament, nodded to please her. But the fact was that he saw naught to admire in the beautiful and brazen amateur's performance. He wondered that she could not have discovered something more original than to follow the footsteps of Maud Allen in a scene which years ago had become stale. He wondered that, at any rate, Concepcion should not perceive the poor, pretentious quality of the girlish exhibition. And as he looked at the mincing dialin, he pictured the lance corporal helping to serve a gun. And as he looked at the youthful, lithe Queenie posturing in the shower bath of rays amid the blazing chromatic fantasy of the room, and his nostrils twitched to her pungent perfume, he pictured the reverberating shell factory on the Clyde, where girls had their scalps torn off by unappeasable machinery, and the filling factory where five thousand girls tripped themselves naked in order to lessen the danger of being blown to bits. After a climax of capering, Queen fell full length on her stomach upon the carpet, her soft chin accurately adjusted to the edge of the plate. The music ceased. The gramophone gnashed on the disc until the footman lifted its fang. Miss, I forget your name, raised both her feet from the floor, stuck her legs out in a straight slanting line, and condescendingly clapped. Then, seeing that Queen was worrying the piece of bread and butter with her teeth, she exclaimed in agitation, Oh my! Mr. Darlin assisted the breathless Queen to rise, and they went off into a corner, 
and he talked to her in low tones. Soon he looked at his wristwatch and caught the summoning eye of Miss I Forget Your Name. "'But it's pretty all right, isn't it?' said Queen. "'Oh, yes, oh, yes,' he soothed her with an expert's casualness. "'Naturally you wanted to work it up. You fell beautifully. Now you go and see Crevelli. He's the man.' "'I shall get him to come here. What's his address?' "'I don't know. He just moved. But you'll see it in the April number of the Dancing Times.' As the footman was about to escort Mr. Darlin and his urgent lady downstairs, Queen ordered, "'Bring me up a whisky and soda.' "'It's splendid, Queen,' said Concepcion enthusiastically when the two were alone with G.J. "'I'm so glad you think so, darling. How are you, darling?' She kissed the older woman affectionately, fondly on the lips, and then gave G.J. a challenging glance. "'Oh!' she exclaimed and called out very loud, "'Robin, I want you at once.' The secretarial Miss Robinson, carrying a notebook, appeared like magic from the inner room. Get me the April number of the dancing news. Times, G.J. corrected. Well, times, it's all the same. And write to Mr. Opson and say that we really must have proper dressing room accommodation. It's most important. Yes, your ladyship. Your ladyship has the subcommittee as to entrance arrangements for the public at half past six. I shan't go. Telephone to them. I've got quite enough to do without that. I'm utterly exhausted. Don't forget about the dancing times and to write to Mr. Opson. Yes, your ladyship. G.J., said Queen, after Robin had gone, you are a pig if you don't go on that subcommittee as to entrance arrangements. You know what the Albert Hall is. They'll make a horrible mess of it. It's just the sort of thing you can do better than anybody. Yes, but a pig I am, answered G.J. firmly. Then he added, I'll tell you how you might have avoided all these complications. How? By having no pageant and simply going round collecting subscriptions. Nobody would have refused you, and there would have been no expenses to come off the total. Lady Queenie put her lips together. Has he been behaving in this style to you, Con? A little now and then, said Concepcion. Later, when the chaise longue and Queen's shoes had been replaced, and the tea-things and the head of John the Baptist taken away, and all the lights extinguished save one over the mantelpiece, and Lady Queenie had nearly finished the whisky and soda, and nothing remained of the rehearsal except the safety pin between Lady Queenie's knees, G.J. was still waiting for her to bethink herself of the hospital subject upon which he called by special request and appointment to see her. He took oath not to mention it first. Shortly afterwards, stiff in his resolution, he departed. In three minutes he was in the smoking-room of his club, warming himself at a fine, old, huge, wasteful grate, in which burned such a coal-fire as could not have been seen in France, Italy, Germany, Austria, Russia, nor anywhere on the continent of Europe. The war had as yet changed nothing in the impregnable club, unless it was that ordinary matches had recently been substituted for the giant matches on which the club had hitherto prided itself. The hour lay neglected midway between tea and dinner, and there were only two other members in the vast room, solitaries, each before his own grand fire. Gide took up the times, which his duties had prevented him from reading at large in the morning. He wandered with a sense of ease among its multifarious pages, and, in full leisure, brought his information up to date concerning the state of the war and of the country. Air raids by Zeppelins were frequent, and some authorities talked magniloquently about the defence of London. Hundreds of people had paid immense sums for pictures and objects of art at the Red Cross sale at Christie's, one of the most successful social events of the year. The House of Commons was inquisitive about Mesopotamia as a whole, and one British army was still trying to relieve another British army besieged in Kut. 
German submarine successes were obviously disquieting. The supply of beer was reduced. There were to be forty principal aristocratic dancers in the pageant of Terpsichore. The Chancellor of the Exchequer had budgeted for five hundred millions and was very proud. The best people were at once proud and scared of the new income tax of five shillings in the pound. They expressed the fear that such a tax would kill income or send it to America. The theatrical profession was quite sure that the amusements tax would involve utter ruin for the theatrical profession, and the match trade was quite sure that the match tax would put an end to matches, and some unnamed modest individuals had apparently decided that the travel tax must and forthwith would be dropped. The story of the evacuation of Gallipoli had grown old and tedious. Cranks were still vainly trying to prove to the blunt John Bullishness of the Prime Minister that the Daylight Saving Bill was not a piece of mere freak legislation. The whole of the West End and all the inhabitants of country houses in Britain had discovered a new deity in Australia and spent all their spare time and lungs in asserting that all other deities were false and futile. His earthly name was Hughes. Jan Smuts was fighting in the primeval forests of East Africa. The Germans were discussing their war aims, and on the Verdun front they had reached Mort-Homme in the usual way. That was, according to the London press, by sacrificing more men than any place could possibly be worth. Still, they had reached Mort-Homme. And though our losses and the French losses were everywhere, one might assert, so to speak, negligible, nevertheless the steadfast band of thinkers and fact-facers who held a monopoly of true patriotism were extremely anxious to extend the Military Service Act so as to rope into the army every fit male in the island, except themselves. The pages of the Times grew semi-transparent, and G.J. described Concepcion moving mysteriously in a mist behind them. Only then did he begin effectively to realise her experiences and her achievement and her ordeal on the distant romantic Clyde. He said to himself, I could never have stood what she has stood. She was a terrific woman, but because she was such a mixture of the mad heroic and the silly foolish, he rather condescended to her. She lacked what he was sure he possessed, and what he prized beyond everything. Poise. And had she truly had a nervous breakdown, or was that fancy? Did she truly despair of herself as a ruined woman, doubly ruined, or was she acting a part as much in order to impress herself as in order to impress others? He thought the country, and particularly its press, was somewhat like Concepcion as a complex. He condescended to Queenie also, not bitterly, but with sardonic pity. There she was, unalterable by any war, instinctively and ruthlessly working out her soul and her destiny. The country was somewhat like Queenie too. But of course, comparison between Queenie and Concepcion was absurd. He'd had to defend himself to Concepcion. And had he not defended himself? True, he had begun perhaps too slowly to work for the war. However, he had begun. What else could he have done beyond what he had done? Become a special constable? Grotesque. He simply could not see himself as a special constable, and if the country could not employ him more usefully than in standing on guard over an electricity works or a railway bridge in the middle of the night, the country deserved to lose his services. Become a volunteer? Even more grotesque. Was he, a man turned fifty, to dress up and fall flat on the ground at the word of some fantastic jackanapes, or stare into vacancy while some inspecting general examined his person as though it were a tailor's mannequin? He had tried several times to get into a government department which would utilise his brains, but without success. 
and the club hummed with the unimaginable stories related by disappointed and dignified middle-aged men whose too eager patriotism had been rendered ridiculous by the vicious foolery of government departments no he had some work to do and he was doing it people were looking to him for decision for sagacity for initiative he supplied these things his work might grow even beyond his expectations but if it did not he should not worry he felt that unfatigued he could and would contribute to the mass of the national resolution in the latter and more racking half of the war morally he was profiting by the war nay more in a deep sense he was enjoying it the immensity of it the terror of it the idiocy of it the splendour of it its unique grandeur as an illustration of human nature thrilled the spectator in him he had little fear for the result the nations had measured themselves the factors of the equation were known britain conceivably might not win but she could never lose and he did not accept the singular theory that unless she won this war another war would necessarily follow he had in spite of all a pretty good opinion of mankind and would not exaggerate its capacity for lunatic madness the worst was over when paris was definitely saved suffering would sink and die like a fire privations were paid for day by day in the cash of fortitude taxes would always be met a whole generation including himself would rapidly vanish and the next would stand in its place and at worst the path of evolution was unchangeably appointed a harsh callous philosophy perhaps what impressed him and possibly intimidated him beyond anything else whatever was the onset of the next generation he thought of queenie of mr dialin of miss i forget your name of lieutenant moulder how unconsciously sure of themselves and arrogant in their ears how strong how unapprehensive and yet he had just been taking credit for his own freedom from apprehensiveness they were young and he was so no longer pooh a brave pooh he was wiser than they he had acquired the supreme and subtly enjoyable faculty which they had yet painfully to acquire of nice, sure, discriminating, all-weighing judgment. Conception had divested herself of youth, and Christine, since he knew her, had never had any youthfulness save the physical. There were only these two. Said a voice behind him, Are you dining here tonight? I am. Shall we crack a bottle together? It was astonishing and deplorable how clichés survived in the best clubs. By all means, the voice spoke lower. That Bollinger's all gone at last. You were fearing the worst the last time I saw you, said G.J. Auction afterwards, the voice suggested. Afraid I can't, said G.J., after a moment's hesitation. I shall have to leave early. End of chapter 28